All right, we are live. Hey, everybody out there. How's it going? Steven Ignoramus here. Welcome to Call Me Ignorant, episode number 22, noon Eastern Time, June 14th, 2019. So pleased you could be with us. Call Me Ignorant is a live conversation show, whether with an interesting content creator, an expert in a field, a controversial figure, or with a fellow human being trying to spread a message. Call Me Ignorant will try to solve the problems of the world, conversationally speaking. We are streaming live right now to YouTube, Twitch, Periscope, Mixer, DLive, and Picarto. If you can't catch the show live, you can find it after the fact on the above-mentioned platforms, also on BitChute and FreedomScoop.com. Call Me Ignorant is also available in podcast format on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Podbean. If you can't find, if you can find, sorry, if you can find me live on Twitter, it's Ignoramus Steve. You can send me an email at stevenignoramus at gmail.com. Topic ideas, questions, and potential guests for the show are much appreciated. My guest today is Jose Alberto Nino. Jose is a political operative, an advocate for liberty, and the author of two books, The Ten Myths of Gun Control and How Socialism Destroyed Venezuela. He was born in Venezuela, raised in America, and now works with major organizations on a host of libertarian issues. He also has years of experience writing for various outlets such as Ammo.com, Gunpower Magazine, and the Mises Institute. I'm really excited to talk to him today about his work, about Venezuela, and about ways we can all fight for liberty thank you so much for coming on the show today jose how's it going it's going great steven thank you for having me on yeah i'm really excited to talk today and before we get to talking about you know the subject matter your books and your goals as liberty activist and all that stuff uh, let's talk about your background uh how old were you when you moved to the united states yeah i moved to the states when i was around like six or seven mm. uh that was like the mid to late 1990s um and things in venezuela were obviously not as bad um as they are now but um there was still like a lot of instability just to give you an idea my dad had like shut down his um small business around that time um sorry 96 I believe and inflation was actually like a hundred percent then um the 90s were marked by growing signs of political instability and my parents kind of saw the writing on the wall. They they believed that like the country was going down a really bad path and that they, they would have to look for greener pastures. So they took my sister and I to the States uh, to kind of like start a whole new life. And it ended up being a pretty smart decision in retrospect, considering that like their prediction came true, the situation deteriorated even much more. And now we see it like, complete collapse mode so yeah i came to the states when i was pretty young and i've lived here for over 20 years and i got involved like in this whole like liberty movement through first the ron paul campaign in 2007 then i got active in like university groups from like 2019 to 2013 and from there i uh worked as like a writer and lived abroad, like in Chile for some time. And when I came back to the States, like around 2016, I worked for a gun lobby, the National Association for Gun Rights as a copywriter and email marketer. Mm -hmm. And now I do like full-time freelance writing and um, email marketing as well. Gotcha. And yeah, I write for the sites like Mises.org, Big League Politics, Ammo.com on a whole host of issues. And uh, 
I have like my own website as well, an email list where I talk about not just like what the issues of the day are, but also like political tactics and strategies for people that are interested at like winning at the local and state level. Gotcha. So when were there a lot of families moving out of Venezuela at the time or were you guys uh, was it a smaller percentage? Like, did they have other friends that came or what were the 90s like for other families? Well, <clears throat> my parents were generally like the few people that left because there was generally a, a belief that, yes, things were not going well at the time, but they would get better over time because there's always been like a kind of Venezuelan mentality that as long as the oil prices can somehow skyrocket or stay high, mm. that could potentially save us even if um, things are bad in the short term. But it turns out that even with the high oil prices that um, occurred in the mid 2000s, Venezuela's um, economic foundations were already built on a house of cards. Mm. So that was not enough to like get it out of there. Um, also, my parents were relatively like middle class, so um, the kind of dislocations that the in inflation of the 90s created really affected them much more than a lot of the upper middle class and upper class people. So they saw like a clear decrease in their standard of living. Just to give you an idea, in 1998, the year that Hugo Chavez was elected, um, the average Venezuelan was poor on a per capita GDP basis than the average Venezuelan in 1958. That type of development um, was considered like an economic disaster, according to Charles Jones, the author of Intro to Economic Growth. And only like a select few sub-Saharan African countries um, experienced such a trend in those 40 years. In fact, like the entire world at least saw some kind of economic growth minus Venezuela and wow. Nicaragua and those other countries. So yeah, things were kind of getting bad there already. Wow. Okay. So, um, you know, it says on your website that you, uh, kind of flirted with, uh, other, other political beliefs before you settled, settled on like libertarianism or uh, liberty movement. Was there a specific, uh, I don't know, were you as passionate about a different set of beliefs before you landed on Liberty or did you just kind of go all over the place? I went all over the place, to be honest. Um, well, I lived most of my life um, uh, in North Dallas, especially like suburbs. So I originally was kind of like influenced by a lot of the boomer conservatism of that er area. Mm. And I had like a stint of like of being kind of like a neocon. Then there was like one point where I was kind of flirting with like socialist and like Leninist ideas, but I was really young. So I didn't have like much of a good political education. It wasn't until I came across um, a lot of Ron Paul videos and rockwell.com articles and books that I started to solidify my political views. And from that point forward, that was like right about when I was about entering college. Um, I became like solidly libertarian and haven't really deviated from that since then.
So one thing that I, you know, I have a, a few listeners that um, aren't really uh, familiar with the liberty movement or libertarianism at all. And one thing that a lot of people don't know is that libertarianism in itself is a big spectrum. So where would you, um, you know, I guess one of the best questions to ask someone in the liberty movement is what uh, what role does the fe federal government have in your ideal world? Like, are you an ANCAP? Are you minarchist, a federalist, like um, small L, big L? How would you classify yourself there? I'm actually more of a like decentralization okay. um separatist libertarian um I think that like in a more practical sense I like to create like multiple Switzerlands um mm. Singapores or Hong Kongs in the world like smaller political units as opposed to like the big mega state like the US is or like the European Union mm. I think that's like the more that's like more of my outlook I pray I put more value on decentralization um I'm pretty partial to some ANCAP stuff um I think that even a lot of like legitimate functions of government there should be experimentation and privatization to see if they get if this market can provide it more but I'm not really that obsessed with the whole minarchist versus anarchist debate. Um, I draw a lot of inspiration from both lines of thought, mm. but um, my whole thing is really localism and decentralization. That's what I want. I want more local control over politics as opposed to like the overwhelming trend that we've seen in the past century of centralization and bureaucratic mismanagement. Um, mm. Gotcha. Okay. And so, you know, before we get into talking to me, like all kind of all things Venezuela and stuff like that, definitely like welcome everyone out there to uh, pick up your books and uh, um, check out your website. Your website's really informative. And uh, one of the things I like the most about it, about your website is kind of your emphasis on strategy, persuasion, and kind of fighting the fight of good arguments, you know? So how did you, how did you hone these skills of uh, making a good case for stuff? And did you write a lot? You re said you re read a lot, um, but how'd you hone this message in these skills? It was mostly through my work and lobbying through on the job experience mm. where I learned firsthand that if you want to be like effective in politics, like no matter where you're at, like a local level fight, state level fight, or even federal level, you're going to have to not only like know your issue pretty well, but you're going to have to learn a lot of marketing especially like copywriting and other strategies and emotional appeals so that you can get your people rallied up and also convert some people as well. But politics is war by any other means. So you have to be prepared. Um, if you're not fully dialed in, you will get your clock clean. That is plain and simple. And no matter how right you are in your ideas, we've seen like the past century, the progressive left has completely dominated like a political atmosphere and also even like a culture and they have completely harebrained ideas they're complete freak show ideas but their tactics are very effective that's how they've co-opted pretty much almost every civic institution in the u.s and even when republicans somehow get into power they can barely make a dent in the overall progressive structure so we um there is like a really strong necessity among people on the right to actually learn tactics lest they want to get completely vanquished by their opponents mm. 
Uh, and then another thing on your website, it says it has like, uh, I think it's Nino's Laws. And I think you mentioned that it, there's a lot. I mean, if people go and look at it, there's like kind of 10 different uh, laws for that type of strategy. So people should check that out. And uh, it also says uh, on your website that um, like after you mentions the red pill of political activism, what what does that concept mean to you? And um, can you point to an event or two in your life that kind of red pilled you, so to speak? I don't know if there's like one event, but essentially like I, I'd say the red pill political activism is that you have to know how to maneuver correctly in politics. You can't just rely on your ideas alone, the right, the righteousness of your ideas. You have to do research, like a ton of research about your opponent, um, about the battles you're taking and stuff like that, or else you're just going to be wasting time resources and talent um mm. on fruitless battles um this also applies to business as well it's like market research if you want to run a successful business you need to like understand what um what the audience in your niche wants mm. and what they hate what are their pain points <laughs> same logic can be applied to um i'd say a lot of politics as well that's why i'm more of a localist because um Based on my experience, like working with the Ron Paul campaign and all that, um, I find that a lot of federal activism at this point, um, it's just very low ROI, um, doesn't yield much. And I think like the biggest changes people can make are at the local and state level with issues like constitutional carry, um, civil asset forfeiture reform, right to work and other issues. There's a clear trend that those um there are more victories at the local and state level rather than the federal level and that's that's law number one right is uh all politics begin locally correct yeah 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 that's particularly relevant for i would say a lot of libertarians too because um one big mistake i saw people make in the ron paul campaign was that they only focused on federal races exclusively and they ignored many potential like state races and state campaigns around single issues and um while we do have people like thomas massey um rand paul like in congress they're only like basically two 535ths of one third of the freaking federal government so like you can't really do much with that. They're completely surrounded. But at the state level, um, you have much more competitive races where you don't have to spend as much money. Um, you don't have to organize as many people. And you can actually have somewhat of an impact. There are a lot of single issue groups and coalitions that you can work with to get stuff done. And a lot of the left has learned this too. They were completely out of power until like the early 20th century but they focused very locally built coalition groups at the local level built a farm team if you will mm. at the local level that would help um create a political machine of sorts that would enable them to like completely dominate like in so many spheres of government and in the culture um i do think some libertarian groups have caught on to this like young americans for liberty They've uh, they have a very robust local and state level program, 
And I completely am in support of that because it's a much more efficient use of resources. And um, it's also like the way you have to go if you want to build like a strong Liberty bench, you mm. will. Wow. Okay. All right. So let's, yeah, let's move on to Venezuela. And your book is called uh, How Socialism St- uh, Destroyed uh, Venezuela. But um, before I ask about some history and, uh, you know, your uh, kind of your expertise on the matter is what what is to you that this one thing that I um, have thought about, you know, I started in two, 2015 as like a straight up Bernie Sanders supporter and I didn't look into social, socialism at all. But that's one of the things I wonder about is what's the difference between socialism, a socialist policy and a social program? I mean, people are like, do you do you like firemen? Then you're a socialist so it's like you know can you explain kind of your take on the difference between between those three things well i think like um well socialism in it's like strict terms is really government ownership of the means of production Mm -hmm. like essentially like the government owns private property um completely owns your private property like everything's nationalized you have to go through like government agencies to get it um basic stuff that's usually rationed by the government Mm. um social programs to me are more redistributionism i'm against them for both ethical and utilitarian reasons um i don't think like the government has a right to like redistribute resources um from people and give them to others they're also very inefficient because they tend to give resources from the productive and um distribute them to the unproductive and that creates a lot of economic distortions Hmm. um now to the point on say like firemen services and police um i would say like the difference in those cases is that those things are more local people um at least like consent to a lot of those programs and are willing to pay taxes or certain user fees for those programs that being said i'd like to also see experimentation on, on the market to see if they can provide um a better alternative to that but i wouldn't say that like that's that socialist because a lot of the other measures that say like bernie sanders a lot of people promote that stuff is complete top-down federal redistributionist schemes that's going to put bureaucrats in control of your life um I don't think you can really compare that because local and firearm services are just simply uh, uh, fire fire services and law enforcement. That stuff is much more local. That's more under the local citizens' control. Mm. Um, that's why I, I'm a big advocate of localism. It's fine if like Bernie Sanders wants to like run his like own like redistributionist scheme like in Vermont or like some township there, but when you put that in DC, you're just going to create all sorts of problems because um, just how the large, how vast the U.S. has become politically and culturally that mm. not everybody's going to be down with that program. Right. Yeah. It requires a lot of coercion and uh, you know basically you know threat of jail. Like you know you just basically have to go along with it or you're you're breaking the law and that that's not right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's move on to Venezuela. So you mentioned the um, the political situation or economic situation in Venezuela when you left was you know 100 percent inflation. But um, and you mentioned in your book that uh, socialism destroyed your homeland in you know 60 years or so. So could you give us just a quick rundown of 
uh, I don't know, we probably don't have enough time to go through like 60 years in detail, but what are some of the important events along that time? And uh, um, give us a quick rundown of the history. Well, you have to understand that Venezuela became rich. Um, it was actually like one of like the richest countries on the planet in the 1950s had like a European style standard of living because um, it had a relatively hands-off approach to the economy from the early 20th century to the mid 20th century. Um, apart from the oil discovery, Venezuela also had low taxes, low regulation, and they actually did not have a central bank till the late 1930s. And that enabled it to not only generate a lot of economic growth, but it attracted a lot of talented um, immigration labor from countries such as Italy, Spain, Portugal, um, Colombia, and even like Le Lebanese and Syrian Christians around that time. And a lot of these people helped build um, the infrastructure for the country. But when the country returned to democracy in 1958, um, you started to see a really gradualist, like social democratic type of economic policy slowly being implemented there. And I'd say one of the big turning points was in, in the mid 1970s when um, the social democratic president, Carlos Andres Perez, nationalized the Venezuelan oil industry which fundamentally altered the nature of the Venezuelan state and essentially turned it into a petro state where the government would collect oil revenues and use them to bribe people with all sorts of government programs. There were some that were legitimate, like infrastructure, but there were a lot of other crony-type programs that um, a lot of these politicians use thanks to the oil nationalization to subsidize. And not only that, but they um, they implemented a lot of like other types of like price controls and other regulations and got on huge spending binges. Also, the Venezuelan central bank was politicized then. The government bought like a majority, like a majority stake in the biz in the central bank. And essentially, like, pursued an easy money policy. Like, in 1983, only, like, a decade after um, going through that whole spending binge and, like, almost complete government takeover of the economy, uh, Venezuela had to, like, experience its first um, major currency devaluation. The Bolivar, the Venezuelan currency historically has been the most stable of the Latin American currencies up until the 1980s. But from that point forward, the country just went into economic stagnation. The 1980s were considered a very like stagnant period, a lost decade of sorts. Um, and a lot of people got restless because people started to slowly become poor, especially the lower classes. And Interestingly enough, the late 1980s, Carlos Andres Perez, the person who started the whole nationalization of the oil industry, was reelected again. And he promised the same oil spending bonanza of the 1970s. But when he arrived in office, he noticed that the Venezuelan state was completely bankrupt. 
was completely burdensome on the economy. So he actually controversially turned to the IMF for certain types of market reforms. Mm. Um, these reforms were a mixed bag. There were some good like reforms like tariff reductions and some spending cuts and subsidy cuts, but they never really handled inflation. Um, they never really fundamentally um, reduced the government bureaucracy there, nor did they even tackle the issue of oil nationalization either. They should have privatized, but they never really did that. And um, as a result, the, resu um, the effects were rather mixed. On top of that, Pérez's party, Acción Democrática, is a social democratic party that's part of Socialist International. Um, they were actually opposed to a lot of Pérez's reforms, and people went out on the streets, protested, and in fact, the government had to um, make a huge crackdown in the 19 late 1980s I believe in 1989, El Caracaso, in Caracas, where people were protesting the subsidy cuts and all that, and also the inflation too, because inflation around that time was around 90%. Um, and Hugo Chavez, when he was the lieutenant colonel around that time, launched two unsuccessful coups in 1992, and there was just complete political turmoil at the time, even though uh, Pérez tried to get some decent reforms in. And Pérez was actually impeached by his own party in 1994 for embezzlement charges. And by that point, um, Venezuela's bipartisan political order was completely in shambles. And Chávez was also in prison, but his popularity increased over time. And when he was pardoned in 1996, the entire environment in Venezuela was ripe for the taking because you had um, – for the first time, Venezuelans like actually poor on net and um, a political system that was completely discredited, a stagnant country that should have been a first world country by the 1990s. So you had a lot of factors that led to Chavez's eventual rise. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Uh, wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. So, make getting, make getting a little echo oh, here. Sorry about that. Um, Sorry about that, yo. All right, we're going to press on. I got a little audio problem on my end. Everything you hearing yourself over, over there okay or hearing me okay? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Oh, yeah. That. All right. So so when you mention these policies from uh, you know, this time period, do you and you mentioned in the book that uh Venezuela had long violated the basic laws of economics. So this is kind of what you mean like uh nationalization of uh of uh natural resources, you know, uh price controls, things like that. Yeah. I mean, um, the previous political era in Venezuela, um, was more socialist light. Mm. Um, I wouldn't call it like full blown socialism, like the current government, but it laid the basis, uh, for it. Um, I will say this socialism is very hard to repeal. These policies are very hard to repeal in general. Mm. You can look at it even in the United States context, like social security, Medicare, Medicaid, that stuff's not going away anytime soon, and it's going to completely bankrupt the country because those types of bureaucratic overreach and unconstitutional programs, they tend to become very much like ingrained in the political structure, and people generally don't touch them. That's what happened a lot with Venezuela, that like the overall political culture was that like the oil needs to be nationalized, and we need to have this type of bureaucracy because we can 
um, centrally plan everything be thanks to high oil prices, which will not be the case as seen throughout my research. And yeah, like Venezuela really hasn't had like a genuine free market period in its past 60 years of history. And I think it's paying the price for not um, making a concerted effort to go, to go towards that route. And now it looks like it's not going to be for a while before any type of reforms come about. Hmm. So what about since, uh, since Chavez got elected? I mean, uh, what, Maduro got elected, was it four years ago? Was that what it was? In 2013, 2013 after Chavez okay. died. Okay. Yeah. So what happened from nine, 1998 to 2013? That's when it got I mean, really bad, right? Yeah, that's when, like, basically, um, it's ironic, too, because Hugo Chavez campaigned on a relatively centrist platform hmm. where he denounced a lot of the crony capitalism of the previous political order and even kind of hinted at, like, bringing in some market reforms and, like, um, reducing some aspects of the Venezuelan state. Fortunately... He just completely doubled down on the failures of the previous era and introduced a lot of like really tyrannical elements into his government from like full blown like private property confiscations without compensation to a lot of like civil liberties abuses, um, price controls, which have caused massive shortages. Maduro has done basically the same thing. Um, they have done some privatization of certain um, companies uh, that have been sold by Chinese and Russian companies. But um, this regime is very much so um, aligned with a lot of like very top-down economic ideas. So they're not going to really go that far with their privatizations. And it's going to be very geopolitical and strategic in how they pursue it. It's very much like a authoritarian regime. It doesn't really care much for individual liberties and limited government. Um, yeah, I'd say like the difference between like the previous political era and the Chavez era is just like the scale of intervention is just much higher. Mm. So, and so, uh, it was under Chavez that, um, that they banned private gun ownership in 2012, correct? Yeah. One caveat to note though, Venezuela has never really had much of a second amendment nor a gun culture. So that ban was really a uh, final nail in the coffin to like an otherwise non-existent gun ownership tradition in Venezuela. Hmm. Okay, They've, gotcha. Yeah, interesting. So, um, so that so that was uh, so people have not you know they you don't have the type of kind of just culture like you do here, Italy or anything like that, where like your average citizen owns guns or is was it more do they do average citizens have they owned guns for a while and it was just kind of not a part of the political cult- culture. Um, yeah, you have to look at it this way, like countries like Italy, Switzerland, like the US, those countries have like, gun cultures that go back centuries and whatnot. Whereas like Venezuela, um, it's very much a part and part of like the Spanish tradition, which was a very top down form of governance where civilians were not really trusted with firearms. The only type of civilians you saw with firearms were politically connected people, people of the nobility or descended from the nobility and like ex-military and also even like paramilitary now. Like 
it's like criminals, paramilitary units, um, military and government officials or people with guns. And some of like the more rural areas like in Western Venezuela, right next to Colombia, you have seen some forms of like gun ownership traditions there and people actually like arming themselves now, even with um, all these bans in place and all these gun controls in place because um, there's just been a complete breakdown of order there. But in Venezuela, most of the guns that you see these days are in the hands of criminals. There are law-abiding people with guns and they are obviously acquiring them illegally because um, they value their survival at this point more so than um, trying to comply with bans and regulations that will leave them victim lit um will leave them like vulnerable to um not just the government but a lot of criminal and paramilitary elements in venezuela mm. so um one thing i've been wondering you know i've been interested in venezuela for about you know two or three years something like that but um definitely since the uprising in early may i think that was april 30th and may 1st um uh, was it a coup and also why um why do we say that Maduro, or we being the the federal government of the United States, why does the, does the U.S. government say that that was an illegitimate election? Like, was it, or do they? We just say that because we don't like him. Well, that uprising was essentially, um, I'd say, uprising is a much more accurate term than coup because a coup presupposes that the opposition in question has actual like military backing and the ability to like deal military force which the venezuelan opposition does not have in fact the military is still firmly behind maduro to the question of um the whole illegitimate election that was part of a larger ploy that i think like the us and a lot of the international community has been pursuing over the past um year or so because there was like a snap election that was declared last year that a lot of the opposition boycotted but the government um participated in as well as um another opposition leader by the name of Henry Falcon hmm. but um Henry Falcon is not really liked by a lot of the opposition in Venezuela so a lot of people abstained and they tried to pull a constitutional trick saying that because there was so much abstention that the 2018 elections were illegitimate and as a result um the president of the national assembly would be constitutionally in line to um assume the press the interim presidency because Maduro technically won those elections. Mm. Um, but they they use this um, illegitimate election ploy to try to um, position Juan Guaido, the National Assembly leader, as the interim president. But this is just a really harsh reality, is that Venezuela does not have institutionality like the U.S., where like constitutional stuff like is carried out um, it's like ingrained in our political culture and it will happen um, according by the book. But in Venezuela, 
it's completely broken down where like rules like constitutional rules are never really respected and um it just comes down to brute force who's gonna like have political power like in venezuela it really boils down to who has military support and who can mobilize people as well which the opposition really has not been able to do in this case i think they have to have military support if they want to even like challenge the maduro government but that's just not the case there and i think like the whole legit legitimacy thing as well has a geopolitical element the u.s um, does not like the fact that Venezuela is in the Russia, China, and Iran axis as well now. So it's gotten geopolitical. And that's why um, they've really doubled down on um, trying to promote regime change there. Mm. And you mentioned that, um, you know, we're, we kind of have uh, Guido's, you know, we want Guido to be in, there in place of Maduro. But, um, you know... You were saying that Guido is not is not much better in terms of he's not the opposite of socialist. He's kind of a different form of it, correct? He's socialist light. Um, okay. His party, Voluntad Popular, popular will in English, is part of Socialist International. Um, if you look at Juan Guaido's plan, País, the plan for the nation, it's filled with all sorts of um, schemes asking for foreign aid from the u.s humanitarian aid you don't really see much of um a move towards markets um in that plan like whatsoever hmm. he's part of like basically the the previous political order it's like they're the the children of the previous political order that stagnated venezuela but with like a fancier and younger rebranding strategy hmm. that's really all it's it is there's not much of a choice venezuela really is like a bolshevik versus menshevik conflict at this point you're like seeing hard it's hardcore socialism versus socialist light opposition um some people will say like socialist light is better than socialism yeah that's true but for venezuela's case i think it really does need really strong measures um to move forward because i think if it beats around the bush um the socialist light opposition if they were able to get into power won't last very long um it needs like more like i would say like chilean style economic reforms like chicago boys style reforms to like actually become like stable but i don't really see that happening in the short term there so other than uh other than you know that the um uprising failed why do you think the uh why do you think the story went away so fast in the media i mean is it just not as not as sexy now it, that it went away or we're on to other things but it seems like it dried up like that and i i heard they're they're holding talks they held talks a couple of weeks ago i don't remember in like norway or denmark or something like that but why do you think that went away so fast because really in my opinion uh, Guaido is not as popular as a lot of people think. Mm. Um, if you talk, I've talked to a lot of people there. Um, there's just like really the opposition um, has become more and more unpopular in Venezuela over the years because they're just not very effective in maneuvering against the government. They also, I personally think they don't offer much ideologically to contrast with the government. They don't offer the right type of policies to get the country like 
moving again. And also the brain drain in Venezuela affects it a lot. Most of Venezuela's most talented people that would be in the opposition, they've already left the country. There's like three to four million people um, outside of Venezuela now um, that have left since Chavez came into power. And really, um, Venezuela, outside of its oil, doesn't have much geopolitical significance because, like, there's this bigger fish to fry in the Middle East because of all the natural choke points and obviously oil, but like the strategic value of those trading routes and whatnot um, makes that area just much more valuable for U.S. interests. Gotcha. All right. So, and you know, um, the last part of your book, you know, the the subtitle of your book, I should say, is uh, you know, why and why the the U.S. should stay out of the way in Venezuela. And you know, this is where I don't know. You could call it like a big debate, but it's mostly uh, you know, loud kind of neocon interventionist voices saying that we should intervene there. Why should the U.S. stay out of the way? I see an intervention in Venezuela as just another multi-billion dollar nation building scheme that won't really produce much of anything beneficial to us interests and it'll just put our blood and treasure mm. on the line and um i actually think that it could have the unintended consequence of having of having like radical leftist groups in latin america really rally around the us um because they can use like the whole us imperialism canard um as a rallying point and you'll see a lot of blowback there i think that it'll create a massive migration crisis that's going to wash up on our shores and um that it's going to have a lot of issues with regards to assimilation um people possibly going on the dole um it'll possibly create demographic shift too that's going to fundamentally alter lot of voting patterns and cultural practices in the u.s by just having like another million people just come in um we already see that with europe is um with the destabilization efforts of the middle east all these refugees coming into europe and forming ethnic ghettos and stuff like that um there's just a lot of stuff there that could um potentially go wrong as well as like I tell a lot of conservatives that like essentially if you intervene there, you're going to be subsidizing and propping up like a, a socialist government in one way or the other. And um, I think like what's happening in Venezuela is more of a cultural uh, issue at the end of the day, like that no amount of like intervention or an aid uh, boots on the ground or whatever is going to change that. It's mm -hmm. going to have to be like the Venezuelan people that change that kind of stuff because you look at like Nicaragua, which is often used as like an example by a lot of neocons whenever Reagan funded the Contras throughout the 1980s. Um, they were able to remove Daniel Ortega out of power, the, the leftist leader at the time. But um, the subsequent governments were just mediocre at best they were either corrupt or very milk toast and ironically ortega came back into power in 2007 so it points that there's like a much larger cultural pathology in those countries that explains why they're so politically unstable and 
U.S. intervention in those countries is just a waste of money and resources. Mm. Um, it's just not going to change much. It's going to be something that has to come internally from those countries if they want to move forward. So do you, uh, you know, we talked a little bit off off camera, on, off air about, you know, Iran a little bit. But like in the terms of uh, general interventionists, do you see uh, um, a time w- where we ever should intervene in Venezuela or other countries like that? Or do you just think that other than, you know, having a magic lamp and making it a perfect world, it, it just shouldn't happen? I only think that military action should be taken if like the U.S. is like directly attacked. And one reason why the founders were pretty non-interventionist is that they recognized that the geopolitical um, benefits of America's uh, location in the world is that it can like stay relatively aloof from a lot of foreign conflicts because a lot of other parts of the world, um, the likelihood of war is very high. And there's just a lot of there have been a lot of belligerent countries where um, if one or two countries get into a battle, it'll turn into a regional conflagration within years. But the U.S. Um, had like the luxury of um, staying away from a lot of these entangling alliances. But unfortunately, it's completely deviated from that since it entered World War One. And since then, we've become like the de facto world police. Eventually, it's going to come to a crashing halt after um, fiscal chickens come home to roost. Um, I think, like, U.S. foreign policy needs to be drastically scaled back, like, remove, like, the majority of these bases abroad, um, put those resources more, like, on our border and stuff, like, actual um, defense. Because what we have right now is national offense and uh, have countries actually pay for their freaking defense as well. That would be a much better change um, in the short term. But yeah, I think like with Venezuela, like um, the policy the U.S. should take is they should probably offer asylum to like any of like the right-wing dissidents, like free market dissidents and stuff like that and um, have like a tighter border policy um, with who comes in and whatnot. But I don't really see why um, we should be intervening at this point. We're just so militarily overstretched. Gotcha. So, but what about um, you know? The, one thing I just thought about is is but if you offer asylum to uh, free market types from Venezuela for them to come in our country, doesn't that kind of increase the probability that? Uh, Venezuela will stay more socialist. I mean, um, I mean, you know, like you said, we're not the world's policemen, but if you if we get all the free marketers from whatever country, doesn't that not help out the, you know, the you know, far left spectrum in that country? Well, it would be this program would be, I'd say, like limited. Um, it'd be very exclusionary. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think um, we should be accepting like all the free market types, but certain types. It should be selective. Hmm. Uh, but it is true um, in the context of um, the welfare state and all of that. Um, it's true. Mass migration does not really benefit a lot of these third world countries because um, they have an exit valve, a very easy exit valve by sending their most talented over to like whatever first world country they decide to choose. 
And as a result, um, those third world countries still stay third world. And that's actually a really good point, Stephen. But um, that's one re- that's one reason why I'm um, more like of like selective migration and asylum um, programs because I've heard some libertarians even say like there should be universal like asylum, which I completely disagree with um, with regards to Venezuela. Mm. There's a lot of other countries as well that like Colombia and Panama that are gladly accepting Venezuelans, though they're going to be overstretched very soon as well. Mm, gotcha. So another thing I, I thought of, have you uh, read or heard of uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman? Yeah, I've, um, I've read some of um, some of that book and I've read some um, blogs concerning that. Mm. What are your, uh, so I think the, I mean, I haven't read like kind of the same thing I've seen a lot of videos on and some blogs. I haven't read the whole book, but basically it's, uh, it's about, you know, um, when, you know, the world bank IMF at like international banking firms try to help out countries and they won't play ball. Then essentially we take, you know, whatever means necessary to either overthrow the government or coerce them into doing things that way. Um, do you think there's any, uh, you mentioned earlier that there were some IMF deals, and I think you said the 80s or the 90s with Venezuela, but do you think yeah. there's any um, weight to those arguments? Uh, it's kind of using, not us, I mean the international banking using shady dealings. I mean, we, they have the backing of the U.S. dollar, so we're, you know, we're definitely involved. But what do you think about that? Well, this is really, it's a nuanced topic because um, it's no secret the IMF and these organizations are not fans of free markets. They basically are like crony uh, capitalist corporatist institutions that have like their agendas and they'll be like situational free marketers if you will depending on the context but they're for the most part they're not talking about ending central banking they're not talking about scaling back the managerial state they're not talking about like abolishing the income tax and stuff like that they're very like um marginal reformists if you will but um, the thing about the IMF, though, is that like a lot of these Latin American countries, um, the big mistakes they make is that they turn to the IMF. They vo- it's a voluntary arrangement at the end of the day. Mm. Um, a lot of countries have avoided a lot of like the more successful, like developing countries, like the East Asian tigers, like the Asian tigers, and some of those countries have generally avoided a lot of IMF aid. Um, and for good reason, because um, the deals the IMF makes tend to be pretty bad. And you're already dealing with Latin American countries that are so dysfunctional that um, they can't even make like basic like debt payments and stuff like that. So um, it's kind of like a lose-lose situation um, for the, for these countries. But at the end of the day, they chose to like also have business dealings with the IMF Um and the IMF, um, I'm no fan of them, but at the same time, like, it's really goes, goes back to like the fact that like these countries are just so culturally and politically backwards that they can barely, um, have things running correctly. They have to, like turn to foreign aid. And that's the thing about foreign aid of any sort is that it will prop up the the corrupt political classes and more often than not it doesn't do anything to advance economic or political development okay and so you know the kind of one of my last questions about venezuela would be like what it would it take to to change it around but you kind of already answered it that it would be like a long process and it has to it has to happen on the cultural level 
Um, uh, and so what do you see this kind of turning around in 20 years, 30 years, or there's no telling? Or how do you see it fixing, getting fixed? Probably within a decade, I think that there needs to be like more of like a market nationalist movement that um, that positions itself like as a clear alternative to the socialist status quo the country's been living in for the past like 50 years. And then um, it has to be like very nationalist in focus where it says like that we're not like a puppet of like the U.S. or any foreign government we're like venezuelans that want to like have regime change on our own terms with real policies that will get the country up and running again but um i really don't see that happening anytime in the short term because um there's just not many there are not many factors that could lead to that happening nor um the venezuelan populace is also looking for quick fixes that's why they jumped on the Juan Guaido bandwagon and quickly jumped off. Um, so it's going to take like a huge red pill moment there for that to happen. And, um, and uh, especially like they'll need like a leader to move that forward. Mm, and like a true, you know, kind of anti-leftist type leader, free market person, national, national free market type. We need a leader. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So I think we're going to wrap up pretty soon. I just got one more question. It's not really like related to Venezuela, but have you ever considered like running for office or, uh, you know, I noticed you you don't have a YouTube channel or a podcast and like, do you want any idea to run for office or start, you know, creating your own audio or video work, anything like that? Um, I'm actually looking into possibly doing podcasting in the, next few months after I get like settled down in Texas, because right now I'm, I'm in somewhat of a moving process and I've been transitioning to working online full time Mm. over the past two months. So, um, that's definitely in the works for political office. Not really at the moment. If I do run for political office, it's probably going to be a local or state level race. I don't really have aspirations to run for federal stuff. I think that uh, the federal government is pretty broken and I'm not going to really focus my efforts on that because it's just so expensive to run a federal campaign these days. So I'm probably going to take it like step by step by um, if I go the political route, just focusing on like local stuff and then moving myself upwards. Cool. All right. I think that's about all the time we had we have for the day. So why don't you tell people where they can find you? I mean, your links are down in the show notes, but why don't you say how they can find your work and uh, stuff about your books, things like that? Okay. Yeah. For you can reach me via email at Jose Nino Politics at Gmail dot com. Nino's N I N O. And you can subscribe to my email newsletter where I drop daily emails at josealnino.com forward slash newsletter and you can also check out my books at josealnino.com forward slash how hyphen socialism hyphen destroyed hyphen venezuela and then josealnino.com 10 hyphen myths hyphen gun hyphen control and you can follow me on twitter as well um, my Twitter handle is uh, Jose Al Nino, and my Facebook is also Jose Al Nino. 
and that's where you can find all of like my works that I share and I'm generally posting content every day. All right. Well, thanks so much for, uh, you know, informing me about Venezuela. I've been looking for kind of a, you know, an inside man on it a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's really cool that I came across you. I heard you on the Tom Woods show and the Pete Raymond show. And, uh, I don't know. I really appreciate it. Well, it was a pleasure, uh, Stephen. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to potentially coming back on your show. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for checking us out on Call Me Ignorant today, where we try to solve the problems of the world, conversationally speaking. You can find this uploaded to YouTube, BitChute, FreedomScoop.com as a video, and Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Podbean as a podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at IgnoramusSteve. Send me an email at StephenIgnoramus at gmail.com. If you feel like supporting the show, you can uh, find some information on donations and monthly pledges at the bottom of the show description. I hope that everyone enjoyed the show today. My guest today was Jose Alberto Nino, author of How Socialism Destroyed Venezuela and the Ten Myths Myths of Gun Control. You can find information on how to support his work linked below as well. Have a fantastic day. Go inform your